Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. This is a special presentation of Radio Islam. I'm your host, Tariq Alameen, and we are blessed to be able to share with you a very timely and important effort. As many of you know, synagogues, black churches, gurdwaras, and mosques have all been targeted by white supremacists in horrific hate crimes. Now, in an effort to build lasting solidarity, Muslim Ark, that is the Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative, has hosted a multi-faith call-in to call out hate public conference call. This took place on Friday, November 2nd. The call was moderated by Muslim Ark co-founder and managing director, Marguerite Hill. We'll let Marguerite introduce the panel. Thank you all for joining us this evening on the East Coast. Um, it's still afternoon um, in California or on the West Coast. Um, my name is Marguerite Hill. I'm with Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative. We um, provide racial justice education um, within Muslim communities and also with allied communities. Um, we, our, our mission is education for liberation. Um, we create spaces for learning anti-racism. We connect a digital network of multi, a multi-faith, multi-racial network, and we cultivate solutions through research and, and um, curriculum. Um, so this evening, we have um, four amazing guests from, from who are doing really great work. So um, our first guest, guest is Arjun Sethi. Um, he's a community activist, a civil rights lawyer, and law professor based in D.C. who works with Muslim, Arab, South Asian, and Sikh communities um, for racial justice, equity, and social change. We have Camilla Mutman Rashad, um, and she's the founder and president of Muslim Wellness Foundation, a nonprofit organization d- dedicated to reducing mental health stigma and promoting healing and well-being in the American Muslim community through dialogue, education, and training. And we have Allison Kaisia, who is the project director of the Islamophobia, a People's History Teaching Guide at Teaching for Change. She's a curriculum consultant whose portfolio includes the Institute for Middle East Studies at Georgetown University, um, HR Educators, USA Amnesty International and Unity Production, Productions. Um, and Allison's working on a seven-lesson uh, um, plan for Islam- critical Islamophobia, and that also includes a unit on hate crimes, teaching our youth to address hate crimes. Um, we also have Rabbi Co- uh, Arya Cohen um, from Bin the Ark, and um, Rabbi Cohen is the a rabbi in residence at Bin the Ark, the Jewish Action, um, Jewish Action, and um, Bin the Ark, a Jewish Partnership for Justice in Southern California. He's also professor of rabbinic literature at the American Jewish University, and his latest book is Justice in the City, an Argument from the Sources, Sources of Rabbinic Judaism. Okay. So what I would like for all of our guests to do is um, to share a little bit about their work. So if you could just each take five minutes to describe your work, 
and how it addresses hate crimes. So maybe we could start with um, with Rabbi Cohen. Thank you. Thank you for thank you for having me. Thank you for the work you do and for creating this forum. So uh, I am the I am the Rabbi in Residence for Ben the Ark Jewish Action, and in that job I I focus mainly on immigration and solidarity. Ben the Ark is an organization of tens of thousands of progressive Jews across the country, and we work in solidarity with other progressive organizations to, re- to resist the agenda of the Trump administration and to lever the power and resources of the Jewish community to create more perfect union and a more just society. Um, what we do, what we've been doing since the election of Donald Trump is we've been working in a kind of a loose coalition, which we call Solidarity and Sacred Resistance. It's an organization of, it's a multi-faith organization of Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, Sikh um, organizations and individuals and congregations um, in order to stand up and with each other to uh, create sanctuary, both uh, actual physical sanctuary for asylees um, in uh, houses of worship and also in private houses and also um, through congregations to um, do logistical sanctuary, meaning helping people to get to jobs, helping people to get kids to get to school, supporting people paying rent. Um, and we also advocate for policies which allow um, undocumented immigrants uh, to come into the country, uh, to, 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 to live in this country without being harassed by ICE, without ICE uh, wreaking havoc in their communities. For example, we were part of a large coalition that advocated for the California Values Act, which was a state sanctuary law. We did this also in um, Los Angeles itself. And we do this uh, in a number of ways. We create public actions. Um, uh, in April of uh, 2016, right after the election, or April 2017, right after the election, um, uh, when in the coincidence of Passover and Easter, um, and also on the day that happened to, that Misraj happened to fall out, we uh, led a large action which combined a Seder and um, a foot-washing ceremony, which is part of the Christian um, uh, Mandamus uh, ceremony, and uh, uh, in front of ICE, where we blocked their driveway, the driveway that they used to take detainees um, to deportation. There were about 350 people, and about three dozen um, clergy were arrested. Um, we did a similar action this year in June when Jeff Sessions came to town to double down on his, on the zero policy, the zero tolerance policy. We closed down the street in front of where he was staying, and uh, about two dozen clergy were arrested in that action, which there were probably four, 400, 500 people. So we use the, the, the power of uh, public actions and, and pressure in order to confront um, the xenophobic and racist and Islamophobic um, anti-Semitic agenda of the administration. I want to say, make a, a couple more points in the next few minutes. 
Um, one is that anti-Semitism and racism have been around a long time, and Trump did not begin this. The country was founded on the genocide of Native Americans and the uh, creation of wealth out of the bodies of Africans. Um, however, Trump created an atmosphere which gave, which gave a certain amount of permission to the racists and anti-Semites and other xenophobes to come out of the shadows, whereas... Um, Racism to some, to racism was 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 more public, but anti-Semitism was very much sub rosa, very much not something that one did it in in polite company, as it were. Um, anti-Semitism and uh, Trump, the Trump administration, the dog whistles, the um, uh, the nodding towards um, the alt right in Charlottesville, for example. Um, find people out there to find people who had killed who had, had, had killed a young woman. Um, that kind of action allowed the anti-Semites to come out of the woodwork, to come out of the dark spaces in the internet, to come out of their their clubhouses, as it were, and and openly espouse the anti-Semitism, which then um, you know gave strength and permission to those who wanted to do real violence, whether it was um, desecrating cemeteries, um, writing uh, anti-Semitic graffiti on synagogues, or, as in Pittsburgh, um, killing Jews. Uh, the, the Jewish community is obviously not nearly in as precarious position as other communities, um, especially uh, African-American community and Latinx community. Um, at the same time, it is important to remember that the anti-Semitism of white nationalists and neo-Nazis is central to their focus and in certain ways animates their hatred. And this has to do with the strange and bizarre way of thinking of the alt-right and the white nationalists, which is that um, the, the white Europeans are a superior race. And by this definition, by their logic, Africans and uh, um, other uh, and others, Africans. Africans are, are at the bottom of the racial whatever pile, and everybody else is in the middle. The problem is they have to um, explain how it was, how it is that they lost the civil war, that they are losing civil rights. That there's got to be some way since whites have to be superior to, especially um, blacks. It must be that there's somebody else who's doing this, and that somebody else is Jews. And if you remember in Charlottesville, when they were chanting, Jews will not replace us, what they meant is that Jews will not allow immigrants and African Americans to replace white Europeans. Because that's their view of the world. And that's what they mean. That's what the, these phrases like Sor the Soros-funded migrant caravan means and that's why it's an invasion because in their minds there are demonic Jews who are manipulating world events in order to replace white Europeans. Um, and even though the Jewish community is not nearly as precarious a position as other communities, we're not in daily danger. Uh, recent events have shown that there is a real danger and we have to fight all these dangers together. And the only way to combat this type of hatred is by building deep coalitions across racial and religious lines. Ben Yark has been doing this for years. Um, our anti-Trump uh, campaign during the presidential campaign, the theme was we've seen this before. T 
tying Trump's rhetoric back to um, things that were happening in the states during isolationism before World War II, to Jim Crow, to um, the deportation of Japanese Americans, uh, and the uh, in, uh, the uh, placing of Japanese Americans in concentration camps. In LA, uh, this takes the uh, these coalition building takes the specific uh, modality of of uh, uh, Build, being part of Solidarity and Sacred Resistance, being part of the Black Jewish Justice Alliance, which brought about things such as the Civilian Oversight Commission to the Sheriff's Department. <clears throat> and also we have the, a, a multi-faith immigrant rights table. And all the, the idea behind all of these things is that my liberation is wrapped up in your liberation, your liberation is wrapped up in my liberation, um, your safety and security and the ability of you to thrive is my obligation and vice versa. Thank you. I think that's, that's a good segue. I mean, you've brought up some really powerful points that I'm hoping we can digest. And for those who have just dialed in, we'll provide a recording so that you can listen again, um, that we can really reflect on this connection between anti-Semitism and white supremacy and how this has implications for us all. Um, I wanted to think about the segue around safety because um, Arjun's book is actually about people whose rights, their safety was violated um, and they were attacked in, in, in this uptick of violence against um, marginalized identities. So Arjun, can you um, discuss little bit about your work and um, about your book and how it addresses hate crimes. Sure. Um, thanks, everyone, for joining on Friday. Um, thanks, uh, Marjorie, for uh, including me in this conversation. My name is Arjun Sethi. I'm a community activist and civil rights lawyer based in D.C., um, as you now uh, likely know, just by virtue of being on this call, um, I have a book um, that I edited that recently came out called American Hate Survivors Speak Out. Basically what I did was for most of 2017, I traveled the country and I met um, survivors, people who were targeted by hate violence um, or hate generally in the run-up to the 2016 presidential election or under the Trump administration. I've written the introduction to the book, which provides a political context, and the conclusion of the book, which focuses almost entirely on best practices and how to move forward. But the body of the book is otherwise 14 testimonials of people who were directly impacted. I use that specific format because I quickly realized as I traveled the country that many survivors of hate in America actually feel estranged from their own stories. They feel exploited by the media, in some cases used by the public, and really they feel like they're you know, their stories have been reduced to a single headline or soundbite. And so what I try to do with the book is not just create a resource for young people, for allies, for community activists who want to take on hate, 
but actually provide a mechanism for survivors to heal, um, a, a platform for survivors to tell their story, to provide a kind of thick description uh, in a way that they hadn't previously. Um, so you will find lots of different perspectives in the book. Um, there are Muslim voices, Jewish voices, folks with disability, as uh, black voices, native voices, uh, queer, trans, um, undocumented, Latinx refugee voices, because all of those folks have experienced uh, really an uptick in, in, in hate um, in this moment. You know, a couple of other observations about the book, and I'm happy to share a little bit more about it um, uh, as the call moves forward. You know, when I initially had set out, I had thought to only include the most searing examples of hate violence, but I realized that I would be doing a disservice to affected communities because people experience hate in so many ways, which is why in the book you will find stories of assault and murder, but you will also find stories of bullying, vicious cyber trolling, vandalism, and arson of houses of worship um, because Truthfully, all of those types of hate um, have spiked and are proliferating, um, you know, across this country. So you have a sense of some of the stories that you will find in the book. The very first story is the story of Asma al-Bukaye, a Syrian refugee, uh, the first ever Syrian refugee to ever be resettled um, in Idaho. And she talks about how, as a Muslim woman and as a Syrian refugee, she experienced all kinds of of everyday acts of bigotry, um, in particular in this political moment. And she also talks about how one day um, her young son was walking in downtown Boise and um, someone came up to him and said, are you Muslim? And when the young man said, yes, I'm Muslim, um, he was violently punched to the ground. Um, you'll find the story of Taylor Dumpson. Taylor Dumpson's the first black woman to ever be elected student body president at American University in Washington, D.C., um, only to find nooses um, uh, hanging across campus on her first day in office. And, you know, as the first uh, presenter said, you know, if you were to see that headline, nooses found hanging across American University in Washington, D.C., you might think it's a headline from decades ago, um, but this is a headline from May 1st, 2017. Um, just a few of the other stories you'll find in the book. Many of you might remember the tragedy from Portland, Oregon last summer um, when two black women um, who were uh, perceived, uh, you know, to be Muslim, one of them uh, was Muslim, Leah Muhammad, um, were on the MAX train in Portland, Oregon, when three, uh, when a white supremacist boarded the train and started bullying them and harassing them. Um, and that was the, the, the day when three upstanders intervened and two of them were stabbed to death on the MAX train. Um, I have the story of the two young women in the book, Destiny Mangum and Walia Muhammad, and it's the first time, you know, they tell, tell their story together. So there's 14 stories uh, all in all. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about it later. Um, the only other observation I wanted to, to, to make um, uh, about my research um, is that, you know, I, I found as one would expect, lots of pain, grief, and suffering across this country. But I also found that survivors, in particular those who have lost so much, are optimistic, hopeful, resilient, um, and are finding ways to push back. And it's really encouraging because every single survivor testimonial includes multiple examples of how survivors are rebuilding, pushing back, um, and building a better community, um, um, not just for themselves and their own communities, um, you know, but for others. Um, so with that, I'll, I'll go ahead and turn it back to uh, Marjorie. Thank you. Yes, I, I really encourage um, folks to, to 
get the book, to read the book, to really look at. I mean, there's so much there, and honoring the stories of survivors is really important and bearing witness to that. Um, One uh, important segue is thinking about how survivors create community, and Camilla Rashad, like she's won an award as community maker. So can you talk a little bit about your work uh, with Muslim Wellness Foundation and Black Muslim Psychology of like how does that, um, you know, like your work in addressing this hateful environment that we're in? Um, thank you, Marguerite, um, really so much for pulling everybody together for this important conversation. Um, and thank you to everyone who's, who's dialed in and is listening um, and to my co-panelists. Um, it's an honor to be speaking alongside you. Um, my work as the founder and president of Muslim Wellness Foundation um, over the last, I would say, seven years um, really has been geared towards, um, yes, understanding the impact of mental health stigma, um, but as, you know, the organization has evolved, really paying attention to the impact of other social cultural stressors, um, particularly on marginalized communities, um, that can actually exacerbate any existing vulnerabilities. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, what is the impact of of poverty, of oppression, of marginalization um, on someone who may already um, be, you know, predisposed to perhaps experiencing depression or anxiety. Um, those things, of course, are going to be heightened, um, particularly in, in this kind of climate where people are experiencing, um, you know, I, sometimes I say trauma with a small t. Um, and, you know, what I mean by that is um, I, I think Arjun mentioned that, you know, sometimes when people are asked, like, well, how, ha- how have you been discriminated against or what has happened to you, um, folks are often, you know, listening for um, some kind of egregious, blatant act of using physical violence, um, but there are times in which, you know, when someone is, is watching you or indicating in some way that, they feel that you are a threat or that you are inferior, it is those microaggressions um, that almost feel like, you know, a million and one paper cuts, like, to your soul. And these are, you know, it's the kind of environment that you have to live and hopefully survive and thrive in um, that really have an impact on, on your spirit, um, on your emotional well-being. Um, and there's um, a clinical psychologist by the name of Dr. Kenneth Hardy and he writes about the hidden wounds of racial trauma. And one of, one of the, the quotes that I often reflect on is that he writes, racial oppression is a traumatic form of interpersonal violence, which can lacerate the spirit, scar the soul, and puncture the psyche. And so when we're thinking about what is the impact of, you know, hearing um, a nonstop kind of 24-hour news cycle, which features, you know, just, uh, any number of communities being demeaned and marginalized, um, it, it has, you know, sometimes a very subtle impact on us. And, and at times, we can often feel ourselves feeling very stressed, feeling burnt out, feeling jaded and cynical. Um, and so there's, there's another um, quote that I'm, I'm often reminded of, Um, And this author writes, the expectation that we can be immersed in loss um, daily and not be touched by it is as unrealistic as expecting to be able to walk through water without getting wet. 
And so when we're constantly inundated with messages of, of violence, of hate, of discrimination, um, that we see an uptick in the kind of animus that results in 11 people, 11 Jewish Americans being killed in cold blood, of two African-American elders being shot to death you know, while they're at the grocery store of, you know, we, when we think of the number of people who may be reflecting on any given day, you know, I may walk outside of my house to do a rather mundane task, like go to the bank, go food shopping, um, you know, take my son or daughter to school, and I may not make it home alive. I mean, this is the reality that many people are living in. Um, because of the physical threat to their safety, but there's also an emotional threat um, to their their sense of uh, well-being and of being able to nurture um, and provide a healing space for those who are trying to figure out how do we process um, the climate that we're living in. Um, so at Muslim Wellness Foundation, one thing that I'm I'm particularly proud that we've been able to do is create spaces, affinity spaces for those who are marginalized and and again because of multiple identities, um, to be able to talk about their experiences, to think about what self care looks like as a community, as an individual, um, but also to begin to think about how do we also experience joy and celebration and family as those things are always uh, protective factors against the hate that we experience um, quite frequently. Um, and so our, our sort of philosophy and approach is really centered on healing justice. Um, and Cara Page and the Kindred Healing Justice Collective defines this as identifying how we can holistically respond to and intervene on generational trauma and violence and to bring collective practices that can impact and transform the consequences of oppression on our bodies, hearts, and minds. Um, and I think that is important that why, while we watch the news and you know, may become fearful and perhaps overwhelmed, that we are also part of communities that have managed to demonstrate a level of, of resilience and of um, really of being able to understand ourselves in positive ways despite the demeaning ways in which we may be portrayed, particularly in the media and to other Americans. Um, and so we hope to, through our activities, provide a space where people can talk about how they're impacted, but also lift up the ways in which they have also experienced um, joy and how their faith and spirituality really plays a part in being able to provide that sense of grounding that's needed in times like this. Thank you. I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> in the background, yes. Um, and, it, and it's really, really beautiful. You, you do create amazing affinity spaces um, at, um, with Muslim Wellness Foundation. I've, and I think one of the, the important, like, so we have this daily onslaught and, and, and our young people, like, how do we talk to young people about what happened? How do young Jewish children, young Muslim children, young Sikh children, children of color of all backgrounds, to, when they see that in the news cycle, that was the most difficult thing to tell my daughter like when I told her last Saturday, um, and I, I was choked up, you know, to tell her, you know, what happened. And um, how, like, the work that Allison, that you do, 
is really powerful in that it's, it allows young people to explore that. So can you talk a little bit about your work and specifically your work around hate crimes and working with youth to address them? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about Teaching for Change, the organization I work for. Um, Teaching for Change is a nonprofit organization that promotes anti-bias education through teacher education and empowering parent engagement. So we do this in a wide variety of ways. Um, we we uh, publish curriculum. We offer teacher workshops um, on social justice curricula, including the Zen Education Project, which is a website collaboration between Teaching for Change and Rethinking Schools. So there are these three organizations that we um, are a collective of educators and curriculum writers who are trying to get conversations about social justice in classrooms throughout the country. And we have a network of over 100,000 teachers throughout the United States. Um, And classrooms, you know, we see these as places where we can create transformative social change um, because all of us on this call have seen the way that narratives have changed in our lifetime, both positively and negatively on a number of different issues. Um, And teachers have just incredible power to be able to plant these seeds um, in the minds of students where they can begin to think more broadly about issues of justice and to make the kinds of connections that um, Aria, for example, was talking about when he was talking about his work at Bend the Ark. Um, so I am working on a project called Islamophobia, a People's History Teaching Guide. Um, and in this project, we are integrating Arjun's book. Um, the whole, this project actually got started because um, my son, who at the time was six, he's eight now, his name is Yasin. Um, when, when Trump got elected, Yasin came downstairs that morning and he saw the headline on the news and he had a panic attack and he started running around the house um, in circles and then he landed at the front window, which looks out onto the street. And he um, put his hands on the window and looked up and down the street and asked me repeatedly when people were going to come kill us. And, um, you know, this is what, I mean, in my immediate response was, you know, I have to teach against this. Um, but I also saw, you know, when Yasin was sitting there, I saw so many children throughout U.S. history. And, you know, people in the U.S. actually don't have the opportunity to hear these stories because they've been so deeply corrupted by the kinds of stories that we hear in history books, um, you know, that, um, that don't tell people the truth about our history. As Arjun says in the introduction of his, of his book, you know, this country was founded on a hate crime. Um, but we really believe that if we share those stories with students and give them that language that it's empowering them to create a future, um, you know, that is centered on principles of justice and equity. Um, And we absolutely can't do that until people know the stories. Um, I took his book actually to Northern Virginia Community College recently and shared it with a group of 25 students, um, all of whom, I won't say all of whom, many of whom were able to connect the stories to personal experiences of themselves and their families. Um, But many students also just said, my God, we don't hear about this. You know, why don't we hear this more? Why don't we hear it in this detail? 
um, and they absolutely wanted to keep talking about it. And their questions also centered on what do we do. And, you know, this is, this is perfect. This is exactly what we want to do in, the, in, in our work at Teaching for Change. We want to raise awareness about a social problem, and we want students to be so moved that they begin to ask, what do I do about this? And then give them the opportunity to explore models of activism and not treat this as a dirty word, but rather really give students the ability to see that activism is good for them and it's good for the community. Um, so that's, that's the project that we're working on. Mm -hmm. thank, thank you so much. It's just an amazing, amazing project. And um, all of this work can be supported and we can follow up. Um, one thing I just also wanted to just really lift, lift up as a leader, like Bend the Arc was seminal. Like that was my, I was in the community organizing residency. It's an interfaith program that they brought um, community organizers, leaders from across the country, um, from different faith communities. And it was the first time I felt fully seen and heard. And I saw the power of the types of spaces that can be created um, in doing justice work and it was really healing and they provided the mentoring that I needed at this time. So I'm, I'm truly grateful for the work of Ben the Ark um, and we can continue to support that. So definitely follow them, support them, show up um, for them. Arjun's book, you can pick up Arjun's book. Um, Camilla, your, your um, Muslim Wellness Foundation, follow them online, support them, donate. Also donate to um, Teaching for Change, and currently we have um, two campaigns addressing the um, one is like uh, picking up a lot of headlines of Muslim Americans donating to the victims of Tree of Life, and so that's like a powerful story of solidarity. And we also have um, a campaign that's going to support the victims of the Kroger shooting in, in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, and that's Vicki Jones and um, Maurice Stollard, who were murdered by white, a white supremacist who initially tried to attack a church, but he couldn't get in. So there's like these deep connections between Oak Creek, um, Charleston, um, Quebec in 2017, and this, you know, this week we had the pipe bombs, you know, first targeting George Soros, and then, you know, like a lot of anti-Semitic rhetoric, and then we had last week's um, murders. So in light of that, we, we have four powerful ways we can do something about it. But I would I like to dive a little bit deeper, um, and we have the next for the next um, 20 minutes, um, and to talk about what can we do now to achieve this vision of the future. So maybe we you share a little bit about your vision of the future and what how what we can do to make a step towards it towards that vision. So should we go in the same order? Start with Rabbi Cohen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Are you on mute? So sometimes that happens. Oh, I'm sorry. I am. I actually wrote my little <laughs> card that said unmute, and I yeah. didn't. <laughs> um, thank you for that shout out to the core residency, and I'm I'm really uh, it's one of our, our um, I'm very proud of that program. Um, so 
what do we do? Where do we go? How do we, what's our vision of the future? I, I think in order to get from here to there, there are a couple of things we have to do and we have to recognize. First, um, it's important to name racism and anti-Semitism um, and all types of um, oppression. It's not, it, it's not helpful to dance around it and to use euphemisms. We have to call racism racism. Um, we have to call Islamophobia Islamophobia. Um, and especially when it's coming from the president um, and his administration. Um, because even after um, the, the shooting in Pittsburgh, the shootings in Kentucky, um, even after the, 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 the pipe bomb, the president and his allies in the Republican Party are still promoting anti-Semitic tropes. Um, and so part of that is, is part of my vision for the future is to to, to, is that we all um, stop using that type of rhetoric, that type of, of dog whistling. So it's, it's not hard. I mean, even if we have policy differences over immigration, which people can argue about rationally, but when Trump talks about um, immigration, he doesn't talk about immigrants. He talks about dangerous hombres. He talks about rapists, Middle Easterners, as if just that's, a, a bad thing. Um, when he talks about African Americans, he speaks about the carnage of the inner city. He constantly questions the intelligence of Ivy League educated, accomplished black professionals and politicians. He doesn't talk about political activists. He just says he says they are paid by George Soros. It's this rhetoric around that doesn't allow us um, to have actual conversations, and also um, to people who are paying attention on the alt-right and white nationalist movement, they hear when, when Trump says, calls the migrant, the caravan of people who are fleeing violence and fleeing poverty, when he calls them an invasion, that, um, that clicks in with what they understand, the way they understand the world, and that incites them uh, to, to violence. So, to get from here to there, um, we have to stop using this kind of rhetoric. And my vision of the future is a future in which there is solidarity. There's solidarity between groups, between uh, you know, racial groups and religious groups, where we all are, where we all recognize um, that all of our individual liberation is tied up with each other's liberation. That we stop this kind of politics of zero sum after the Kavanaugh nomination when Trump was confronted by a reporter about the fact that um, uh, Professor Blasey's testimony was powerful and sounded truthful, his answer was, it doesn't matter, we want. And that kind of a politics is not a politics that's going to create a just nation and a just community. Politics that creates is going to create a just nation is a politics that has to be based on an idea of the good and an idea of justice. Um, so, if you know the, the the positive vision for the future is that we all have a very deep conversation about the good and the just and what it is that we want. Um, my dystopic vision is what happens if we don't do that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's that's very, very powerful. And so it is definitely an imperative that we continue the conversation and that, um, yeah, and I, I'm really thankful for all of our panelists who are continuing that conversation and that if we can knit, um, knit our work together, then we can be stronger and reach more people. So let's go with Arjun. What, um, what is your vision of, your, of the future and, and how do we get there? What are, what are some initial steps we can take now? Um, so a bunch of things come to mind, being very mindful of time. Um, I'll just make a few observations about, you know, some best practices for how do we, how we get to that future that I think we all so desperately want. I think the rabbi is right. We have to start by, um, you know, naming it what it is, right? Uh, recognizing white supremacy, um, uh, understanding this country was built on a hate crime, understanding that while Donald Trump has emboldened hate. Um, you know, Donald Trump is but a symptom, and hate preexists with Donald Trump, and hate will endure after him. I think in connection with that, when we are thinking about advocacy and moving forward, we have to do a better job of centering black voices, native voices. We don't have to reinvent the wheel um, because so many of those communities um, have experienced subjugation and oppression for as long as this country has existed. Um, and we need to learn from those experiences and really centering them. Um, I think we need to figure out ways to better support survivors. As I traveled across the country, I met survivors who didn't have access to health care, um, survivors who had PTSD who weren't able to access mental health support. Um, and as uh, uh, Camila rightly pointed out, um, you know, there is a community-wide impact. Vicarious trauma is real. And as a consequence, we need to be talking about racism, hate, misogyny and sexism as public health issues, um, because really that's what they are. I think understanding that the best defense to hate, the best defense to state violence is community, um, and the most powerful shield we have is solidarity. Um, I completely agree, uh, Marjorie, and you mentioned it before, before I did, but, you know, we saw an extraordinary example this weekend, and it has been wonderful to see Muslim organizations across the country, you know, on their own, raise hundreds of thousands of dollars to support, you know, the affected uh, uh, community um, in Pittsburgh, you know, in the wake of the Tree of Life massacre. Um, I think also, you know, we've got to move on from interfaith conversations. Um, it's true, I am a sick American, and I am, you know, in that sense, you know, I have been vulnerable to, to acts of hate my entire life. But I've got to tell you, um, and I say this often when I go on, you know, on book tour, you know, I'm a little tired of going around saying, like, I'm Muslim and I'm Jewish and I'm sick and I'm Buddhist. Like, I think that's important, but we need to be having, like, anti-racism trainings, right? We need to get beyond the interfaith conversation and talking about things like explicit racism, things like implicit bias, and, you know, and progressively moving the conversation forward. Um, I think we need better data. I mean, you know, we all to some degree rely on the FBI data, which is kind of absurd, you know, considering so much of the violence we experience comes at the hands of the FBI. Um, we also know that the FBI annual report on hate crime data, although it shows a spike in hate crime, is grossly incomplete um, because it relies on voluntary reporting by local law enforcement, not mandatory reporting. We recently learned just actually weeks ago through some really wonderful reporting by a national organization that according to the Tulsa Police Department, there were zero hate crimes committed in 2016, which is absolutely abominable considering Khalid Jabara was murdered in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 2016. So, 
you know, really we need better data because better data allows us to see who's being targeted where and by whom. Um, and then the last point I'll make, and I think it goes back to the work that Allison was talking about, is really understanding the importance of dialogue and the importance of working with young people. My book really intentionally tried to center women of color, tried to center people who are from multiple, multiple disenfranchised communities, but again, young people, because they are the future. And what she found is what I found is that many young people want to get involved and they want to move the conversation further and they, they want to actually take action, um, but often they just don't know how to take action. Um, and I found that stories move them and sometimes you just need to work with them in the context of workshop and dialogue and they're ready to be a force for change. Um, so again, also just centering young people as we move forward. Thank you. So how, um, Camilla, let's, let's, um, can you share your vision and how, what are some steps to get there? Yes. I mean, I, I just have to, you know, I, I had myself on mute, but just wanted to say amen to everything that, that Arthur <laughs> said. You know, yes. particularly, you know, naming racism. I, I think so much of what begins to happen is that we are, experiencing basically gaslighting on a national scale, right? That we see the things, you know, the, the marches and saying Jews are not replace us. We see, you know, people being murdered just simply because of who they are. And there are those who still refuse to name just the, the horror of white supremacy and of nationalism in this way. Um, and so let's this, this use kind of clear and direct language um, so that we're all on the same page. Often when I begin discussions of, of, of race and racism, so there are some principles upon which we all have to agree. And that is those two things, that racism and, and implicit bias, they are as you know, common as the air we breathe. It's all around us. We ingest it. We internalize it. And so if we can move from that starting point that we are all inundated with racist messages, we internalize messages of inferiority and of superiority, um, and we have to actively work against that conditioning, now let's move forward, right? This is something that is not up for debate. Um, and so I, I would have to echo definitely naming racism and also, um, I think for me as a mental health professional, it's also naming the individual and a collective pain that we also experience as a result. Um, and again, one of the ways to, to be able to cope and manage with the pain that we experience both consciously and subconsciously is affirmation and acknowledgement right, that those who experience these realities um, as very difficult and challenging we should work to affirm that this is the case, right? We don't want to minimize the experience or say, well, perhaps you're being a bit sensitive or, you know, you shouldn't have to worry too much um, because, you know, the Constitution, you know, doesn't allow for that. Well, you know, presidents and dictators and people in power have done many things um, that we you know, begin to think is, is just intolerable um, and, and gradually that line begins to, to shift um, between what will be tolerated and what will, um, what will not. And so I, I think that in naming the pain that people experience and affirming that, you know, their reality is, is very troubling and upsetting, you know, it provides some sense of reassurance and comfort. Um, and when we acknowledge 
that across, like not just within our own communities, um, but it's always important for me um, to, when these tragedies strike, if I have friends or colleagues um, that are members of those communities that I reach out just to say I'm thinking of you, right, that, um, that I'm really saddened by what has happened, um, and if, that is, if there is anything that I can do, that, that I'm here. Um, and just, just that connection or that offer, um, I know that I have experienced as, as very um, inspiring and very hopeful and reassuring. Um, and so I think that we can all do that and say not just when tragedy strikes our communities, but others as well. Do we reach out? Do we acknowledge that there is pain there? Um, and, and finally, I would say, again, to extend um, Arjun's point about um, you know, bringing in youth voices, I think it is also incumbent upon all of us to think about how we nurture intergenerational relationships because some of the, the repetition of the hate that we're seeing is that people forget that history is very much present, right? Um, and so as someone who's 40 years old, how do I interact with those who are 20 years younger than me and those who are 20 years older, right, just as an example? Um, do I listen? Do I take in what their history and experiences and wisdom has taught them? Um, do I uh, build coalitions with people of all ages, acknowledging that um, everyone has something valuable to contribute? And so I, I think one of the um, kind of low-hanging fruit for us is to think about, you know, in our own personal circles of, of friends and of, you know, of comrades, of people that we work with very often, is that an intergenerational um, group of people, right? And where is the wisdom coming from? From the youth, from those who are kind of in, in kind of this middle season of their lives, but those who also can look back upon decades and say, here are the trends and the things that we've noticed. Um, and it is, is often upsetting for me when you know, I hear of Holocaust survivors say, but this is how it happens, right? I think we need to pay attention to this wisdom and, and act accordingly. Um, so with that, again, name the racism, name the pain, um, establish intergenerational connections that can provide just a wide, um, just well of wisdom that we can all draw from. Thank you. Um... And that's, I think that's like a really good segue to Allison's work. Um, what is your vision of the future and what are some steps we can take to get there? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, ideally, if I could snap my finger, then, you know, schools across the United States would institute curriculum that is fully focused on a people's history, um, both content and pedagogy. What I mean from that, you know, if you're not familiar with Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States, um, you know, this is a very influential uh, book in our work. Um, you know, hearing the voices of everyday people and using those voices to describe what has happened in this country um, and also, you know, where we should be moving forward. Um, and the pedagogy piece is super important because, you know, in the work that we do, we can't just give people this information. And, and um, you know, lecture formats, for example, um, you know, it's just not good teaching. People don't learn this way. They have to discover information for themselves, and they have to practice articulating their vision of justice. And most Americans simply are not given the opportunity to do this. 
Yet if we get to kids, you know, earlier, um, it's, it's just unimaginable what they could create out of that, right? So it's um, a lot of vocabulary building. I mean, even when I was working with Arjun's book, um, and this is so common, the students kind of will stop at this point where they say, um, how do we stop these crazy people from doing this, right? They only see this as acts of interpersonal violence, and they don't have the vocabulary to talk about structural aspects of injustice, which is part of what they need in order to envision what a future of justice could look like, right? Um, and we can't teach that kind of vocabulary without really making the space to do the deep work of it. Um, and, and schools are a place where we can do this, um, but we also have to create space in the public square for people who are not attached to schools or of course, recognizing that lots of schools are just deeply oppressive places for people, and, and this isn't, you know, a place where they would want to do this. Um, and then, you know, again, what we do in the organizations I work for, Teaching for Change and Education Project and Rethinking Schools, is to teach students in an intersectional way. So just thinking about some of the projects my colleagues are working on, I, you know, I'm working on the Islamophobia Project, um, one of my other colleagues is working on projects around COINTELPRO and really getting uh, students to talk about that history, um, you know, and the targeted assassination of activists, um, teaching about the wars, which we have been embroiled in for the last 17 years, the Reconstruction era, you know, when black lives did matter. Um, there's just incredible history there to think about what the future could look like. The abolitionist movement, we absolutely have to reinvigorate these stories and encourage kids to think of themselves not as allies, but as abolitionists. Um, and teaching climate justice, teaching the Me Too movement, all of these things together are what can really empower students to create uh, a future that does not look like the, you know, our current state of affairs. Thank you. I mean, it's, I love this multi-pronged approach, and I, and I think that it's possible um, from working with young people, creating these spaces, and starting early to give youth this, this ability to talk about justice, what justice looks like before they tune out because of this kind of that despair and the nihilism, right? And then we have creating community, creating connection, creating healing, naming things so that we don't become numb, um, to um, thinking about how to get better data, right, to know what's happening so that we have a deeper awareness beyond the news headlines. Um, and definitely there's, there's this theme, right, of going beyond the interface. As much as I love multi-face interface work, but really when we're talking about what's happening to the Muslim community that's targeted, when we look at it from a, from a racial justice lens, then we can get a better understanding of how this is um, tied to white supremacy and how we can get at the root cause. This is not just if we sing Kumbaya, it would go, go away. And so um, having these critical conversations, as Rabbi Cohen had mentioned, is, is, is definitely key. So if we can continue to have conversations, if everyone who's on this call um, gets three other people to have conversations, whether you want to re-listen to this and then go back and then have a conversation with two of your friends, that would actually be a ripple effect. So I'm hoping that we can create this ripple effect. Um, you know, some of this was really heavy, 
And I just want to really acknowledge that. And there's a sense of urgency. So there could be some anxiety about all the stuff that we need to get done. And, um, and I hear that in, in our voices. And, you know, I feel that with myself also. And so from each of you, and we'll start out like what I would like, um, and I'll have Camilla do, do this last of like closing us out. But if we can close out with each sharing an inspirational quotation, something that can inspire, that inspires you, and that you hope can inspire our listeners. So, um, Allison, can you share any quotation or a thought or something that inspires you? Um, well, very briefly, I'll just say I'm sitting at my desk at my home office, and in front of me is a quote that I keep to inspire all my work which is um, every day is Ashura and every land is Karbala, which um, you know, comes from Imam Hussein. Uh, if people don't know the story of Imam Hussein, there's a great website called Who is Hussein? It's a nonprofit organization, I think, out of Britain. But they have a great summary of the story of Hussein. He was the grandson of Prophet Muhammad and was a martyr who stood up to a tyrant leader. Thank you. Thank you. So I hope we all follow up with those stories who, for those who aren't aware. It's very powerful. Um, and Arjun, can you share um, a quotation or, or a thought that inspires you? Sure. Um, it's a quote from James Baldwin. Um, and the quote is, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. Thank you. I'm gonna. I'm. I'm trying to write. So if there's if there's a pause, I'm like, I'm trying to get the heavy one. It's a heavy one. I took you up seriously on the task of giving us a quote, and it's it's sort of it's uh, it's it's one that really pushes us, and it's and it it forces us to sort of grapple with all kinds of existential issues. But yeah. Yes. Powerful. Powerful. So, Rabbi Cohen? So, uh, at the our community meetings, we start out by, by all saying together a quote, which is from uh, the Mishnah, from the 3rd century Mishnah, and it is, it is not upon us to finish the work, yet we do not have the right to stop doing the work. Okay, so I will, I'm just writing the beginning, and I will continue writing after this, Paul. Um, and Camilla, can you um, close us out with a quote and, and a faith reflection? Yes, um, and again, thank you for everyone who joined the call, and you, Marjorie, for pulling us all together. Um, mm-hmm. One of the hadiths or the, the sayings of the Prophet that I often reflect on is um, that Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of God be upon him, said, whosoever of you sees an evil, let him change it with his hand. And if he is not able to do so, then let him change it with his tongue. And if he is not able to do that, then with his heart. And that is the weakest of faith. And so I, I really strongly feel that we are in a moment in which we're all called to bring forth all the good within us to make a positive impact. Um, so, so this is my prayer for all of us. That in this time of uncertainty, may God always guide our steps towards faith, courage, and resilience. May we be forever blessed with the strength and the courage to stand up against un- injustice. 
May the Creator grant us the patience to persevere in the way of truth, even when we feel overwhelmed by the arrogance and the obstinance of inequity and hate. May our hearts and minds remain hopeful, filled with the optimism and fearless courage of youth. May the folks in our lives nourish us with an abundance of love, compassion, empathy, and honesty, so that we may continue to do the work of change with a steady hand, a brave tongue, and a pure heart. And Thank you all for joining us for this call. Um, There's a few things we can do right now. Um, So if you can, you can share out the Launch Good campaign, launchgood.com front slash Kentucky, um, and share out that campaign so that we can address um, and show support to um, the families um, in Louisville of uh, Maurice Stollard and Vicki Jones. Um, you can also support the organizations of and the work of the people that are on this call. Um, Arjun has a fantastic book um, and try to get yourself a copy and share some of those stories, have the conversations around them. Um, look at, try, if, you, if you have youth, young people in your family, encourage the teachers to get involved, like get Teaching for Change. Um, mm-hmm. Some curriculum out there for sure. Support Muslim Wellness Foundation. Last of all, there's a lot you could do. Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative, we are a membership-based organization. You can join us. Um, we're always looking for regular volunteers. We offer online trainings. Um, we also do a lot of on-the-ground programs, so you could bring our trainers out. We are expanding our roster. Um, and so we're really working hard to create spaces for learning. We have, we'll be at Facing Race for those who are coming to Detroit, so I will be in the vending section, so come visit us. Um, make sure you sign up for our mailing list, so you can go to muslimarc.org. Thank you all for taking the time out this Friday evening, and have a good night. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you all.